Well, good morning again, everyone. If you have one of those cool journals in front of you, which I hope you do, if you didn't get one, you're like, what? Are the, I didn't grab a scripture journal. They're on the table over there. You can use your Bible. That's totally up to you. We just wanted to provide an opportunity for you to be able to take notes. So turn open to those, to Matthew chapter 5. And of course, on the week where we decided we were going to hand out scripture journals, the first passage I'm going to read from is not in the book of Matthew. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's my bad. But it'll be on the screen for you. But just, you know, that's just how I work sometimes. So um, I'm going to read to us this morning as you're finding Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read to you guys this morning from 1 John chapter 3. And um, we'll begin with this thought. John writes in 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. All those who have this eager expectation of seeing Jesus, of being a part of his coming kingdom, will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. That doesn't sound very passive, does it? A lot of times I think that we consider the purity of our hearts in the same terms, the same idea as our salvation, meaning that you know we don't have any participatory action to be taken inside of that, that we basically are receiving salvation from God, which is grace by faith. And we know that to be true, but also the purity of our lives is something that God is just doing without us being a willing participant. And that's not necessarily true. In fact, it's not true at all. According to first John chapter three, he says in that passage, which is still probably on the screen, all who have this eager expectation of Christ's kingdom of seeing him will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. Belonging innately to those who are born again is the desire to be pure. Did you catch that? I'll say it again. Belonging innately to those who are born again is the desire to be pure. Now, will you still struggle with flesh amidst that desire to be pure in the spirit? Sure. We're all in a battle with flesh, but there should be a desire within us to be pure as he is pure, to be like Jesus in that way. And while we've been cleansed of our sin is from that place of salvation by grace through faith that our journey in Christ begins, we're not spectators of this journey. We are active within it. Purity is something that we are taking action upon within our heart and it comes out through our lives. We're not having any part of saving our souls from sin and death. But in the living out of our lives day by day, from the moment of salvation into glory, we are participants. And that's throughout Scripture. Purity is not outside of our control. I've had young people tell me in the past, as most of you know, I started my time in ministry, my full-time vocational ministry, and with, you know, I was the youth pastor. I'm sure you couldn't imagine that if you didn't know that about me, right? just the way I shake up here when I start talking. But you you understand that like so many young people struggle with this issue of purity. Parents are like, amen. Yeah, you did too. You should be amening not only on part for your own children's struggle, but you remember it. You've been there. The struggle is real when it comes to remaining pure in this world. 
And what's interesting about this is we act as if purity is outside of our control. And young people have told me before, I have no control over myself when it comes to this sin. I had one person tell me that when I was meeting with them. He said, I have no control over myself when it comes to looking at pornography. I literally lose control. I can't, I can't stop myself. I don't have the capacity. And I said, can I please ask a qualifying question? You are telling me then, if I'm to understand this, that you have zero control, that it overrides your system and you must do it with nothing in you to stop that. And he said, yes. I said, get saved. I said, give your life to Jesus. He's like, but I'm a Christian. Not from what you're telling me. Now, I don't know if you just don't recognize or willing to admit that you have the strength to stand up against it, but 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says clearly he provides the way of escape when you are tempted. And so if you are in Christ, there is a way of escape. If you are facing temptation, if you are struggling with purity, there is a way of escape. You just are not choosing that way of escape. You are choosing your flesh, and that is sin. Repent of that. Christ can heal it. Amen? You can be free of that. It does not hold sway over you. You are no longer slaves to sin, Paul says to the Romans. You are slaves to righteousness now. You belong to Jesus. He's given you freedom. Walk in it. There will be many things that come along with your decision within to remain pure, with your heart's condition to commit to the purity that is in Christ. There's going to be things that you might necessarily have to do, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. There might be drastic measures that must be taken, but inside of our text this morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus approached that and why it's not only hyperbolic, but it's also comical at some point. Those who are pure in heart, as Jesus has already referenced in the Beatitudes, will see God, and indeed, only the pure in heart will desire to. Did you catch that? It was one of our Beatitudes that we already studied. The pure in heart are the ones who will see God, and indeed, only the pure in heart will want to see Him. They will desire to see Him. But that purity of which Jesus speaks is not separate from the law. And Jesus did not come to do away with the laws we talked about in verse 17 of the Sermon on the Mount here in chapter 5. He didn't come to do away with it. What did Jesus come to do with the law? He said, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I'm here to fulfill the law. And it's not something that we can expect to perform as if we were keeping the law without addressing where purity or lack thereof comes from. It comes from the heart. This isn't about you doing a better job. This is about God renewing your heart and making you a new creation. He is not calling you to correct your behavior. He's calling you to give your heart to him, which will correct your behavior. That's a one-way street. You can put the best-looking clothes possible on your body. That doesn't make you a clean person, does it? doesn't make you a clean person. You can still be filthy. And that won't change the fact if you put on the best, cleanest clothes that you have. Church, can I be really honest with you guys? I have been dreading this sermon and the next one. Because today we get to talk about adultery and where it comes from. And next week we get to talk about divorce. And these are tough issues. These are serious issues. These are hard-hitting things. And I don't want you guys to think for a second that I stand in this pulpit arrogantly not recognizing that these are touchy things. That these are things that we have pain and suffering and hurt in our lives from. But we have to address it. You know why? 
You know why. Everyone's like, yes, we know why. Because Jesus did. Because Jesus loves us. He addresses these things. So let's step by step go through this and look at what Jesus wants to teach us. This is going to push the boundaries of our comfort. And I'm praying for the Spirit to speak to us with a clarity like we've never experienced before, even if we've read this a thousand times. Even if we've read it over and over again, please, I beg of you, hear it with fresh ears. Hear it as if it's the first time. Last week, BJ spoke from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, speaking of murder that we commit within through our anger. The murderous intent of the heart. In that text, Jesus is expounding on the true meaning of the sixth commandment. It's interesting because it makes sense when you think about it. He sets us in place with the Beatitudes. And then Jesus talks about how he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And then what does he start doing? Breaking down the commandments. Last week was the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Guess what today is? The seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do away with. In fact, I came to expound upon. And he's walking us into the law and expounding on the law for us. So here this morning, we shift from verse 27 of Matthew 5. He goes to the seventh commandment. Let's look at verse 27. We'll read down through verse 30 this morning. Jesus speaking, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. The teaching against adultery, if we want to summarize just what we're talking about in the context is unlawful sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman, whether practiced by married or unmarried people. We're talking about sexual sin of any nature. Anything that we commit in our mind that is not God-approved. Now, the rabbis in Jesus' time were attempting to limit the entirety of the command against adultery. As they often did, they would add to, and a lot of times when they would add to, they're adding stipulations or ways out of actually doing what God had told them to do. You don't do that at all. They just did it. We can point our finger at them. What's the old saying? Point one finger at somebody else. How many are pointing back at you? You know, we look at these things and we're like, oh, well, surely, yeah, that, those Pharisees. <laughs> Danger. Be careful. The second that you start pointing out the faults and flaws of others, we start recognizing if we approach this text honestly that we are in the same boat. We just do it in different ways. We just have different avenues that we go down. The rabbis would try to limit the entirety of the command against adultery. They would teach that it was sin to commit the act. They would teach that. In fact, they drug a woman, as you remember, into Jesus' presence who was caught in the act of adultery and said she deserves to die. Kill her. And what did Jesus do? Boy, he threw them down, didn't he? Not only with he who's without sin throw the first stone, but as they all left, the one person who could condemn her to death for her actions said, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. He says, I'm not going to condemn you either. He says, where are your accusers? She's like, they're gone. He says, I'm not going to accuse you either. Go and sin no more. 
So they would teach that it was a sin to commit the act, the Pharisees. However, they would not include in their teachings the 10th commandment. Pop quiz. Anyone know what the 10th commandment is? Shall not covet. You put commandment 7 and commandment 10 together, you have a pretty powerful team up of what's going on in here. Not only are we not to commit adultery, Jesus says that happens in the heart. He says, don't desire something that God has not given to you. Uh Uh-oh. Don't worry, it gets worse. Here, (laughs) half the room. I'm going downstairs. The kids have breakfast. You guys, here, (laughs) I walked in here. I was like, "It's, it's IHOP today. Like, this is literally IHOP. All I want is bacon. That's pretty much any time in my life. Anyway, here Jesus brings both together as God intended. It's not only sin to commit adultery, but it's sin to lust in your heart for something that isn't yours. And he's saying it's the same as doing it. Now, he's not saying the consequence is the same. He's saying that the sin is the same. If you're thinking it, that is a sinful thought. Address it as such. What's corrupting your mind will eventually come out through your actions. As the prohibition of murder included the angry thought and the insulting word, as we talked about last week, the prohibition of adultery included the lustful look and the imagination. I am burrowing into your thought life right now. Not literally. I'm not like seeing you. You're like, ah! (laughs) Evasive maneuvers. No, like you guys, I don't have that ability, but God sees it all the time. He hears your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking. Are we bold enough to pray the prayer that David did in Psalm 139 when he said, "Seek, search me and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. Next time you're being tempted to sin, I want you to say that out loud. Try me and know my thoughts. God, try me and know my thoughts right now. See inside my mind and what I'm thinking and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Take me in the direction that honors you. Take practical steps. Take the necessary steps. Jesus is not telling us to look at attractive, not to look at attractive people. You know, we're not supposed to walk through, you know, hey, it's summertime. Can we just be honest? It's summertime. If you go down to the lake, there are things you should not be looking at, guys and gals alike. And I'm not saying put the blinders on like a horse and just start trotting on through because you're going to hurt someone, including yourself. You need to learn the self-discipline of training your thoughts. We're commanded to not look with lustful desire. We all know the difference between looking and lusting. You know it in your heart. You know when you cross that line. The Spirit makes us aware of it. And so many times people go to these extremes. They're like, I'm never going to look at anyone ever again. Well, that may work out for some of you gals because some of you dudes... Anyway, but you you guys, if you, (laughs) that's only in our favor, (laughs) but anyway, I'm joking. I'm joking. But you guys understand this though. We go to these extremes. I'm never going to look at anyone ever again, or it doesn't matter. I, you know, most of you guys know this about me as well, because I've known most of you guys for a reason amount of time. There's some newer faces that don't know me that well, but I, I didn't start out right out of Bible college in the ministry. In fact, I, I was in the workforce for about 10 years. I was working in construction. I was working in grocery. I was working in restaurant management. Do you know what that means? Do you know what I heard on a daily basis? Bile. Foul language. Foul actions. Foul thoughts. 
And, and you know what's crazy is I heard this all the time from the guys, and maybe you guys can, can testify to hearing this as well. It's not a sin if you don't do anything about it. It's not a sin if you don't touch it. It's not a sin unless you go up and say something to them that's rude. Well, okay, so let's just, let's just draw the line then wherever you want. Since this appears to be up to us, right? To establish what lust actually is, what wrong actually is. Isn't that our world today? We are allowed to establish for ourselves what right and wrong is. Jesus is telling us exactly where we draw the line. Right here. Right here. He says that adultery, it started inside you. Do you know what that means? Lust unchecked within us is brewing adultery right now. That should bother you. It infuriates me. And I'm not saying this so you look at your partner and go, I knew it. No, 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 no. This is for us individually. This is for our own hearts, our own lives. That, la- that lust unchecked is adultery brewing and waiting to happen. Why do you think our culture is such a mess right now? Sexual immorality that began in people's hearts. Jesus makes it clear it is still sin even if you don't act upon it. For when the image enters the eyes, we have a choice to make. When the image enters your eyes, you have a choice to make. That's why I teach young people when I was a youth pastor, learn to train yourself when you see. It's not a matter if you see something that's going to be tempting to you. When you do, how you respond matters inside Will I honor the human being I've just seen as a soul created by God or demean them within my own thoughts as an object? Will I dehumanize them because that would be nice for me, that would bring pleasure to me? Or am I going to recognize them as a created being in the image of God, a son or a daughter of the king? Don't devalue people's existence by taking advantage of them even in your mind. Which one of us isn't guilty of adultery in that way? Which one of us would stand before the throne of God and make the statement that I have not fallen in this way, that I haven't committed adultery in this way? This puts us all on the same plane. This puts us all on the same field. We would love to convince ourselves that because we haven't acted on our lustful thoughts, it doesn't matter, but it does. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Even faster than your body. Yet how often are like, well, I didn't act on it, so it's not that big of a deal. Your heart is corrupted so much quicker. And he didn't mean it in the same context, but Shakespeare said it. The eyes are the window for the soul. You're letting things have access to your innermost being by what you see. Those leering looks you think nobody notices. They're corrupt. So what do we do? How do I take action? What do I do about it? How do we address our lust disease? How do I keep myself pure as he is pure? As John writes in 1 John 3, 3. I never would have seen Jesus' response coming. I'm going to be honest with you. I wouldn't have seen his response coming ahead of time. I mean, this is a rabbinic thing, and I just haven't seen that in rabbinic literature But we'll talk about what Jesus is about to say in a moment and how it was something that he liked to say more than once. 
It's fascinating to me that when somebody struck with this idea that adultery is not something that you physically do, that it begins in the heart. It is something that carries itself out physically, but it's something that happens via lust in our lives. The next thing Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, if you chuckle, that's okay. Because it's kind of a comical thing to hear, unless you're an ultra-literalist. And then it's a scary thing to hear. I had someone once tell me that um, my heart and attitude were wrong scripturally. And the reason that they said this is because I wasn't living a life like them. And they said this to me, I always obey every word of God. Now they were quoting something out of context. And I said, you still have two eyes. You still have hands. You still have feet. So if you're going to quote things out of context and take things literally and say things in the way that you're saying, you better get to that maiming, right? Not memeing, sorry, generation, but maiming. I know everyone comes in here like <laughs> everyone just rolls in, right? Because they got no feet or hands or eyes left. He says, this, he says, listen, if your eyes causing you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, the same idea, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All pastors have their favorite sayings. You know mine. Okay? You know I love to say that's for free. When I said something that wasn't on my notes or I wasn't thinking of, and it just, you know, I'd like to say the Lord gave it to me, but it's probably not always the Lord gave it to me. It's oftentimes just my twisted sense of humor. But think about this. Jesus had things that he would repeat as well. If you read in Matthew chapter 18, he adds a foot and uses the hand-eye thing again. He uses the eye, the hand, and the foot that time to get across the same point. Gouge it out, cut it off, hop around, you know. It wasn't jump around back then, it was hop around. Uh, anyway, you guys understand what I'm saying, but here it makes perfect sense as to why Jesus is using the eye and the hand. Why? Because the eye is where the lust begins and the hand is where the adultery begins. They are coordinated. They are connected. The eye correlates to lust and the hand to the adultery. So it makes sense how Jesus is connecting the imagery. But was Jesus serious? This is where it's very important to recognize the types of literature in Scripture. Because for someone says every word is to be taken literally and applied, then you are going to have a very brutal life. And indeed, some have. How many, of, how many of you are familiar with the story of Origen in the third century? Who took these verses literally enough to maim his body and castrate himself. He took it all the way to the literal extreme. This is causing me to sin. Is that the right application of what Jesus is saying? Is that what he wants us to do? No, we have to understand what Jesus is doing here and look a little bit deeper don't follow the example of origin of Alexandria. Do you wonder why the Council of Nicaea the following century is like, we need to address some barbaric things, boys. How would you like to come into that church meeting? Um, Harry made some big mistakes last week. Uh, Mike didn't clarify the type of literature that we were looking at. And um, well, he's going to need some help from now on. And um, uh, yeah, we have a problem. 
Council of Nicaea says these barbaric practices, we need to rightly understand the Bible. We need to rightly understand what Jesus is saying. Now, there's a couple trains of thought on what Jesus is saying here, and I actually think they bring us to the same conclusion. So I'm going to kind of blend them together, and rather than go through all the motions of showing you where these people are coming from, let's just look at what they said and kind of compare what Jesus is actually saying and see that it brings us to the same conclusion. He doesn't want us to mutilate the temple of the body which God has given us. God doesn't want you to mutilate yourself. He gave you what you have. He designed you. He formed you in the womb. He doesn't literally want you running around cutting things off because you're not going to run around for very long. Okay? Not only that, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Jesus is seeking to adjust our intentions and our actions. He's seeking to correct the heart and the action. You recognize that that has to happen within first, which is why he calls out the lust that leads to adultery first as primary. Because if you win the heart, you get the mind. In other words, if you have the mind that's like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get this down, but the heart hasn't changed, you are going to fail. How many of us have failed in our Christian walk because we're trying to do the right thing rather than give our hearts to God and let him pour his love and his affection and his peace and his grace and his justice and his righteousness into us and let that come outward? Because if we give our hearts to him, our minds will follow. And if you're struggling in your thought process, it's revealing a cavern of your heart that you have not surrendered to him. And God is calling us out this morning to open the closets, open those places that we have withheld from him and be free of that. He wants to adjust our intentions and thereby our actions. And I believe he's using hyperbole here to do so. Hyperbole being intentional exaggeration for the sake of making a point. Jesus can do that. He's allowed. And I think he throws in a little sprinkle of humor. Because what we think about, what your mind goes to, is what would it look like to see a bunch of people walking around with their eyes gouged out, no feet, no hands, rolling around. Especially here in the region of Galilee where it's so hilly and the the lake's at the bottom. If they all start cutting their... Oh, oh, here we go. And then they fall on the ground and all roll into the lake. Now, I'm being ridiculous because it's ridiculous. He's using hyperbole. This allegory in which the eye represents a lustful perspective and the hand represents an immoral action is being used in order to convey a vital requirement of discipleship. You must be willing to take the necessary steps to purify your life, church. You must be willing to take the necessary steps. In the Pharisees' view, the law could be satisfied. Through what? What you do. Think about the setting. I don't know if this excites you guys. As you can tell, this is just one cup of coffee. If, if, you're, if you're thinking about this, this is exciting stuff because Jesus is speaking to a crowd that is used to hearing Pharisees teach. Just be a good keeper of the law. He's like, no, it's no wonder you're a mess. You haven't dealt with the true problem. You could avoid sinning if you simply eliminated the body parts that are making you sinful. That's the conclusion that the Pharisees would lead you to if you thought along their process. Just get rid of the stuff that's making you sin. That's truly the problem. No. Then you would roll into heaven a mutilated stump. But the mutilated stump could still have a wicked heart. The mutilated stump of the body could still have a wicked heart. You can cut every possible piece off your body and not fix what's going on in here. Clearly, that's not what Jesus is saying. In agreement with that, 
Here's another perspective on what he says. If I submit to Christ's adjustment of my intentions, did you catch that? If I submit myself to Jesus's adjustment of my intentions, my actions will change. My life will be altered. If I believe what Jesus says, my actions will flow from that belief into reality because I believe it, because I trust him. You see, we have to fix this lack of faith by taking it away from things that are not worthy and placing it upon the one who is. And then my actions in my life changes. If I submit to Christ's adjustment of my intentions, my actions will change. I won't be mutilated at the end of the process because I chopped off every possible instrument of sin. But because I was purified from within and that came without. I was purified within and that worked its way without. Not without something in that way. Without is meaning the outside. That'll naturally make me a person who avoids sin. Not only who makes good decisions when I'm tempted, but it also makes us people who naturally divert from sin. When we recognize that's a temptation, we divert. Why? Because that thing is a sin for someone else too? Well, certain things are. Some things are a sin for all of us. Some things are temptations to one and not to another. Paul deals with that in some of his letters. The purity Jesus calls us to begins in the heart, however, and here we find the source of why so many people struggle. They have attempted to control the actions without repenting of the lustful thoughts and idolatry that's connected with lust and covetousness. Did you catch that little insertion there? Idolatry? When you are not worshiping God by giving him your heart, you are worshiping something else. Worship does not cease when I'm not giving it to God. It redirects. We are always worshiping at every moment of every day for our entire existence. So when I am not worshiping God, my worship diverts to something else. Hence the reason idolatry is such a big problem. Worship is always coming out of my life. Even when you're spending time with your family, even when you're playing sports with your church, Please do so God in a godly fashion. You know, like there, there's these things though, like everything about our lives is worship to God. Everything that we're doing, it's not the part where blah, 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 we're singing the songs and then worship is now over. I can serve whatever I want now. Or I can just, uh, I'm just currently like in that seeking phase where I'm not really worshiping anything. I'm not really religious right now. Okay, so you're into yourself. That's fine. Worship is always happening. It's always going in a direction. Job took this pretty seriously. Many of you will know this verse. Job said in chapter 31, verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? Job's just talking about how he has made commitments to righteousness in that passage. What's fascinating is how many guys are like, so we should all make a covenant. Listen, Job's, Job's response to his physical temptation was a result of his heart's condition with God. You must make the same decisions. That same decision process should be for us. Job made the decision not to let temptation get the best of him. It's why I believe both in the heart being regenerated and taking practical steps to prevent ourselves from sinning against the Lord. It's why some some guys have advised, get rid of your cellular device 
Or get one that doesn't have a screen on it that you can go and access internet with. Just get one that's just a flip phone. You're like, a flip phone? Yes, there are worse things in the world, like no phone. Right? You can get away with it. You can pull it off. But shift your life if you recognize that this is a temptation. And I know for a fact that there are people here this morning who are struggling with temptation and losing. There are people hearing my voice right now, and I'm not accusing anyone. I'm just stating fact, who are struggling with temptation, and you are losing on a regular basis, and God wants to regenerate your heart, and you need to take the practical steps thereafter that actually bring change in your physical life. We have to take these things seriously. Jesus, when he says, gouge your eye out, doesn't want you to maim your body, but he does want you to be serious about getting rid of things that are sinful in your life. You don't need a television that badly. You don't need a cellular device that badly. You're like, well, that sounds like legalism, Mike. No, legalism would be everyone get rid of it. You're not allowed. That's legalism. I'm saying this. If it's tempting you, take measures. Whatever they are, whatever the Lord leads you to take, take measures against it. Stand up against it. Make a statement that you belong to the Lord and you're not going to allow sin in your life. I'm just trying to fire you up. You know, I'm going to send you out there and you're going to expect there to be a football field or something. There's not. There's life. And it's way more important than a stupid game. It's way more important. We are all tempted in different ways. And what tempts you may not tempt me. And vice versa. What tempts me may not tempt you. If I know what tempts me and I don't take the necessary preventative action to not be in that position of temptation, then I am in the wrong. That's my problem. That's my heart. And that reveals something that I'm not giving to God. It reveals that I value something, maybe even a convenience, more than I value the Lord, more than I value my heart being pure before him and being like Jesus, which means I don't really care that much about reflecting him. I care about my convenience and my comfort. And that's wrong of me. You know what tempts you, and I know what tempts me. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus is telling us individually, if your eye causes you to sin, don't look. If your foot causes you to sin, don't go. If your hand causes you to sin, don't do it. Some people are like, this sounds like workspace. You missed the first verse that we talked about. It begins in here, but it gets carried out in our actions. Don't think that I'm sending you out to make all these changes in your life without fixing the heart problem first, and that's something you have to surrender to him in your heart. The heart change comes first. Have we exalted ourselves to the position in this same breath of identifying what tempts others all the while being ignorant to what tempts us? Don't be guilty of that either. Don't be guilty of thinking of other people in this moment. This is for you. This is for me. This is for us to take personally. Don't try and fix other people's problems in this moment. Surrender your heart to God. Surrender your struggle to God, your temptation. We may need to eliminate things from our lives, but be careful that you don't judge others based on your own limitations. Some things are off limits for us. Universally, those are clear in Scripture. They're absolutely clear. But others are based on weakness and maturity, as Paul addresses in Romans 13 and 14. So some of these things, and what's crazy about it is a lot of people are like, well, I'm okay with this. He's like, yeah, but it's causing them to stumble. So what do you love more? What do you love more? Do you love what you want and you feel justified in? Or do you love your brother enough to give up something? 
so that they can grow. Don't cause others to stumble with your freedom. And that's what Paul says in those chapters. Church, we have to be careful to not lead each other into temptation either. Prefer one another over your own freedom. That's how Jesus lived. Romans 12.10 urges us, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Check this out. Take the lead in honoring one another. Win at honoring one another. You guys, can I just have everyone's full attention for just a second? I know it's been a bit and, and maybe people are nodding off. I just, I want you to hear Romans 12.10. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. If that sticks in your mind, in the context of Matthew 5 this morning, win. Take the lead in honoring one another. Love each other more than yourself, more than your temptations, more than your things. I'm going to ask my kids to come on up. Sorry, the worship team is my kids today, so I would never say that of just the worship team, but ask my kids to come up here. I, I want to close off with this. Which one of us, again, is not guilty of adultery? Every single one of us is guilty because it's happened here. Walter Chalmers Smith wrote in his hymn, one thing I do, or excuse me, one thing I of the Lord desire for all my way has darksome been, be it by earthquake, wind or fire. Lord, make me clean. Lord, make me clean. As he purifies our hearts, I want us to partner or join with him with all our effort that we can muster. As Christ cleanses our hearts and has saved us from our sin, I want us to partner with him in this path, this life, this journey of purity. You want to send kids scrambling, especially when I used to teach at North Idaho Christian School? You mentioned the word purity in a chapel. They want to hit the doors. They're, they're so ready to be out of that room. Because it's a very uncomfortable thing to discuss. Adults probably want to do it too. We're just mature enough to have that straight face. No, go ahead. But inside you're like, ah! All who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. If Christ is our hope, we are about purity in our hearts and our lives. We're all about it. Colossians 3 Verses 5 through 6, Paul writes to the church, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. He says, church, don't be a part of the reason why the wrath of God is coming. Don't live that way. In fact, he says in verses 10 through 11, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. Make it about Jesus again. Make the struggle that you go through for purity in your life about Jesus as a song, one of my favorite worship leaders used to sing it at Bible college all the time. Look to Jesus, who's already won. Look to Jesus in all of these things. Submit yourself unto him.
Church, I want to see every single one of us liberated from the adultery of the heart. I want to see our marriage show the fruit that comes from that liberation. I want to see our kids experience homes where they are inspired by their parents in this way. And they go on to replicate that process, only doing it better than we've ever done it before. Because they are closer to the Lord and they've been nurtured and grown in these ways. I want to ask you guys to prepare your hearts for next week as we talk about the natural segue of of sexual sin. The natural segue of where lust and adultery leads to, and we're going to talk about divorce. There's a lot of brokenness over this. I'm going to ask you guys very plainly to pray for me because I don't want anyone to think I don't love them or I'm not being sensitive. But we need to talk about these things with candor. And we can do that because we love each other. Because Christ is all that matters and he lives in us, we are free to love one another and to have the hard discussions and to talk about how it changes us and brings us closer together and does not divide us. Satan's intent is to rip this church limb from limb. He wants to tear every single one of us apart. He wants us to fight with each other. He wants us angry with each other. And we will not let him win. Amen? Do not let him win. Submit yourself to the spirit. Jesus is more powerful. And he has called us to godliness in him. And he has made us one body. Besides, it looks ridiculous when fingers try to fight with each other. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for a time to respond both in prayer and in worship. And I ask that as we go into this time of just considering what we've heard. And Lord, so much of this is just one of those internal struggles that we are engaged with on a regular basis. Lord, I know that there's going to be temptation waiting for us the moment that we are not singing your praise in this room. There's going to be temptation. And Lord, we ask that you would remind us continually that those of us who are not experienced that, to watch their feet, according to your word, he who is standing, be careful that you don't fall. And that those who are experiencing temptation, Lord, would then look to you who provides the way of escape so that we can bear up underneath that temptation and that desire to live according to the flesh. We are new creations in you, Jesus. May we walk in that truth. Church, I just want to invite you to remain with your eyes closed, your heads bowed. So much of what we talked about this morning was personal. Take this time to personally confess sin. This is the right time for that. Confess sin that you've been giving into. Confess things that you're struggling with or temptations that you know are waiting for you outside those doors. Repent of these things and experience his forgiveness because it's here and he's ready to give that. He's faithful and just. Not only to forgive, but to cleanse from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we just ask that as we do that, as we pray, that you would work. Let's just keep our heads bound, our eyes closed for just a moment.